Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kautzer, and this week we're changing it up a little bit. Not just with, uh, instead of doing genre, we're actually doing a director, but uh, we're doing a two-part episode with two films, but... We're talk because we're talking about a director. Um, I decided to change the format in that it's going to be together. It's one long episode, but it's actually going to be two parts, and basically going to be breaking it up into two different parts. But we're going to be talking about the director and the two films that I chose to focus on um, in the same context because I feel like. Or in the same episodes, and I because I feel like each one of them kind of are it's not that they're a reaction to one of each other but I feel like this because of the director and because of these two films it warrants conversation between like mixing the conversation up um and looking at her like looking at her as a director and between these two films and not as separate episodes um because of what happened to her during each of these productions the same thing happened i mean like everything in her career it seems like it was a struggle and oh well why don't we just get right into it we're we're actually talking about writer director and sometimes uh actress elaine may um she is somebody that i've wanted to uh talk about on the podcast for quite some time now and i just didn't find the i i just hadn't scheduled it in yet because well um, availability of certain films of hers have it's been rough um and I wasn't sure because we're gonna cover all of them I mean she's only made uh she's she's actually only um written and directed um four feature films and one documentary that was a part of a PBS American Masters uh series so I'm not really sure if we can consider that a feature film even though it kind of is but she's only directed written and directed four films and um each had varying degrees of availability so I wanted to make sure that we could because her work is so important to me, um, it's become more and more important to me, like these four films that she directed, that um, it was extremely important to me that these were available for people to actually watch and very easily available. And the two films that we're talking about today are very easy to, or they're they're readily available right now. So we're actually talking about um, A New Leaf, her feature film debut, and Mikey and Nikki. Um, her third film. Now, the reason why I chose these two and not the other two is because I feel like these, because they warranted discussion about what happened during production and post-production. And the reason why I feel like it's so important to talk about her. Um, so Elaine May herself, um, Elaine May was a part of the comic team Nichols and May. Uh, you may, I mean, of course, you you like if you're a, cin- a cineast, you'll know Mike Nichols uh, went on to become a, a director of of great importance and great note. Um, Carnal Knowledge, The Graduate, um, a slew of different of uh, other different films, but Nichols had always like has been in the lexicon and the discussion in film but when we talk about elaine may there is one huge elephant in the room that appears to be always a conversation with cineasts about her or people that know her um which is ishtar and 
guys, I don't care if you like it or not. We're fucking covering Ishtar because I, confession time, I love Ishtar. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's a, that's for a separate ish episode. My whole Ishtar experience and my whole discussion of Ishtar is for a later conversation. It may very well come up this season. Hint, hint. But Elaine May, I mean, within her director's, uh, like her directorial career, um, has been besieged by so much bullshit. Uh, even though when if you watch any one of her four films, you see an immense talent, uh, not just like not just a, not just good films, but truly dare to be great films. Uh, the two films that we're talking about today, uh, both of them respectively to me are great films, great with a capital G. They're not, they're, they're nothing to be fucked around with or trifled with. I mean, these films are on par with anybody else's films. And it, to me, it's just a shame that she's never been given that credit where credit is due. Um, and I think that's, it, it's, it's been like over the last 30 years, it's been because there is, there's this cloud over her career because of Ishtar and even then like even before that I mean you know she I mean she didn't even get credit for the writing that she's done um I mean she's she's written films like Reds Warren Beatty's Academy Award winning Reds she wrote a lot of Tootsie um she wrote uh, she wrote most of if not all from what I've understood of Labyrinth um but a lot of the work that she did was rewrite work so she never got the credit for it um i think that in her whole entire career she's not really been given credit for where credit is due i mean you if you listen to the her routines with mike nichols um the nichols and may stuff which um i've done slowly over the years um because i've been such a fan of hers um and mike nichols too i, I mean i'm i'm a big fan of mike nichols i think that uh, I know this is going to be a very controversial opinion, but I think that The Graduate is an overrated film and Carnal Knowledge is a very underrated film. Um, I feel like Carnal Knowledge is more of a film that I can get behind more so than I, I know this is really shocking and don't please don't come at me on this one. Then then The Graduate, though, I find The Graduate a really, really, really sharply, acutely observed film. It's a great film, point in fact. Um, as uh, like, you know, Steven Soderbergh, what have you would stump for. Um, but with Elaine May, it just feels like all of the credit and gravitas that has been glommed onto Mike Nichols has been taken away from Elaine May, even though I'm pretty sure that she would never say anything about this. She would never complain about it, but I f like, I feel like as, as film fans, we've not given her her credit because uh like i mean let's just get right into like like both of these films a new a new leaf and um mikey and nikki so a new leaf is a, quite possibly one of my favorite uh romantic comedies um it's about this dilettante played by um <laughs> uh, played by walter Matthau and uh henry graham is a true dilettante he does not do anything he lives off of a trust fund but his trust fund as we quickly find out in the first like five minutes has been has been dwindled by his excess spending and 
at first, after he finally gets this news, because there's this, like this great setup where he's sitting there and he's avoiding his accountant. Um, like he he literally like keeps on dodging him um, because like and I think that this movie is very relevant to nowadays um, with certain particular types of people where he's avoiding it because he knows that it, there's some kind of bad news. And when he finally gets the news from Beckett, who's played by William Renfield. Now, most people will probably not know that name, but but when you see him, you will know exactly who he is. William Renfield it was a uh, was a site was like a um a character actor in the 70s and he passed away way too early i mean the 60s and the 70s um he played harding in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and um and he's just he plays this part to the perfection about uh, like this this long-suffering lawyer or accountant i should say that basically gives henry uh played by walter Matthaus, the news that he's no longer going to be able he's poor not just cash poor, but poor, poor. And as Henry is thinking about killing himself, rather than killing himself, his butler um, suggests that he possibly get married. And thus starts this very strange, odd, and very, very dark um, movie about this dilettante that decides to marry one of the klutziest women in the world that is super rich played by Elaine May, Henrietta Lowell and Henrietta, uh, like, like I said, played by Elaine May in what has to be one of the most uh, perfectly obtuse and wonderfully klutzy uh, roles, like uh, performances of all time. I mean, there is an art to the way that Elaine May plays Henrietta Lowell and how how much just <laughs> how much collateral damage she caused, like physical collateral damage throughout the film. But it's this very dark romantic comedy about this man child and his ultimate plan to marry this woman and have her befall an accident so that he could collect the money and continue on with his bachelor ways um and i i can't even describe how richly drawn and performed and 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 creative this film is because it takes you to some of the places that you would expect but a lot of places that you don't expect um it gets very dark but it manages always to be light. And what like ultimately I love about it is the way that it completely confounds somebody like this, this, this movie is for the people that do not like romantic comedies. Like I remember as a kid, I loved romantic comedies, but you know, as I got older, it just like, I just, I just lost a taste for them. They're just too many stupid fucking romantic comedies where everything pins like you know depends on either the man or the woman being like some level of sociopath to put something in their way and here <laughs> they're almost making fun of that i mean elaine may takes somebody who could possibly be like a somebody who could kill somebody but ultimately the story is about 
like how people come into our lives and uh, change them possibly for the better, possibly for the worst. I, I think that a lot of people haven't seen this film, so I'm not going to like ruin the um, ruin the ending for you and, and what actually does happen. But what's so wonderful about this film is the chemistry that uh, Mathau and Elaine may have and how put off uh, Walter Matthau. I mean, Walter Matthau was the king of the brush off and the king of the sardonic, but you know, here he's a little extra extra here is Henry Gibson, a man who, or I'm sorry, Henry Graham, Henry Gibson is actually an actor, but uh, somebody who literally is put out by everything here. And about like, I think that this may be one of the first films that kind of, um, like approaches like the man baby and, and really, really kind of dissects what a man baby is and, and critiques them in a very weird and, and kind of fantastic sort of way. Uh, like Elaine may like part of the problem with this film and why most people don't know about it is because she had an, an, an extremely tough time, with this film, the, the physical production of it. And ultimately the editing, um, was like, was just, was just like incident after incident for her. Um, because the studio, um, Paramount just did not like anything that she was doing on the film. And she had to navigate this while making the film. And ultimately she made her original cut was like three hours long and thus began the fight between her and the Paramount, uh, the Paramount executives at the time, um, over the the film, the cut, the tone, and what was released is supposedly a compromised cut, like that. That though uh, Walter Matthau and a lot of the cast liked, Elaine May did not like, um, which to me is always ironic because. What I see here is just this beautifully unique, um, interesting, surprising, funny, just really fucking funny and and uh, at times dark comedy and romance. And uh, it, it, like even now, like looking at it, like even during the 70s, this was like this is a movie that when you look at it, you go, whoa, that's fuck. That's it's pretty daring to do something like this. But ultimately it's it's this great piece of cinema that she's managed to concoct and and create that's part like i said it's like part romance part comedy um it's a a man coming a coming of age man baby story uh it's a little bit of a crime film at a certain point um a certain bit of a con uh and it's all just kind of done with this lighter than air touch like like what I think that I love about Elaine May is that she is such the undercover comedic bit person. Like as a director, she manages to find a bunch of subterfuge to put the setups and payoffs of her of her comedic bits into her films. Like like uh, a new uh, a new leaf is full of these things of of like just being able to put in things that are going to be that are comedic things that will pay off eventually. Um, 
And it's just, it's wonderful and beautiful to watch these things get set up and paid off. Um, like the Jack Westing character who, um, Andy McPherson, who plays this lawyer, but there's so many different layers to his, uh, to his relationship with Henrietta and how he becomes, how he's, he's, he's this antagonist, but, a but in his own weird way, he's a protagonist and his, his relationship with Henrietta at face value is one thing. And slowly but surely we end up finding out that his relationship is so much more than it initially appears to be and it's not because of anything that it's not because of like the like uh, it's not because like you know Henrietta's withholding it's literally like how the story evolves and what you end up finding out through um <laughs> Henry and Henrietta's like courtship you find out about uh, about him and how that informs like how that informs Henry's thoughts about Henrietta, which is really fantastic. And when you, when I watch this film, I've watched it multiple times and I always marvel at just how profoundly layered the writing is and how she's able to make a true character arc for Henry um, out of not so much incidences that happen to Henry but what he sees through his relationship with Henrietta how he starts off as one thing and thinking of her as one thing but as they move forward and as he starts to as he starts to look at her and really see her how his point of view changes and how he starts to realize that there are people in in her life that are doing exactly what he wants to do to her and how that reflection of himself within certain people in her life starts to make him change by degrees and like I love that it's by degrees like when you see this film it's not going to be something where it's like at the end he's totally changed he's he's like seven percent a better person uh, it's not that he's a hundred percent better. He's still, he, he's still Henry, the Henry Graham that we, we meet initially. That is a dilettante, uh, uh, like just somebody who just has no use in society and society has no use for him. Um, and like, like it's funny because his, his manservant, um, his manservant, um, Harold, uh, who's played by this uh, by the great George Rose? Uh, uh, Harold basically tells him tells Henry at the beginning. He's like, he's like you like the reasons for finding a wife and continuing on with the income, like finding a new source of income, is to make sure that uh, certain uh, certain traditions that Henry upholds that have been long gone well over two to three centuries old are continued uh, into into the future i mean essentially basically saying that henry is so archaic that he's holding true to traditions from the victorian era and later with harold which just just goes and proves like just how much of a piece of shit henry is at the beginning um but 
in the way like it's really it's really fun to watch that evolution and how after you've watched this film a couple of times how Elaine May is able to write these characters so richly and and start them off in one place but then end them off in another but that that other place that they end up in is anywhere between 7 to like say 15% different i always find that it's not the movies that make like a 100% change that are the most profound they're the ones that make small tweaks to a person like where you watch a microcosm um like a a microcosm of a life like like fight like like a percent of a percent of a percent of a a person's life but that particular percent of a percent of a percent is a profound moment in their life and it manages just to skew them a little bit and because i mean in real life that's the way it works it's it's a skewing of of a life like just it's like i said 17 to 15 percent and it's just this beautiful thing because if you can pull that off like it's it's one of those things where you just go wow like that's fucking that's difficult the degree of difficulty that ultimately elaine may is is hand uh, is is handling in this particular film which is actually an adaptation of a, a a novelist, um, Jack Ritchie, his his uh his story called The Green Heart, which is more of like a like a short story novella at most. Uh but but what she's done here is she's taken this story, this small story, and changed it just enough for her own like for her her, her own needs as a storyteller and just creates this <laughs> this great this great dark comedy that I think is so unexpected like at least for me it was highly unexpected when I first saw it um I think I saw it at the New Beverly um maybe 7 or 8 years ago um no maybe even sooner than that I think it was I was going through a really dark time and it was probably around a, like one of my breakups and um I went to the New Beverly to see it and was just completely floored because I was in the right mode to see it. Like it's that kind of movie that, um, that it plays dark, but it doesn't play too dark, but it, it, it plays just dark enough to like, you realize that, you know, things could like, you know, you're never really sure how it's going to end. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to tell you how the movie ends, but, um, it's, it's great nonetheless. And I mean, like, I love this era of, of Walter Matthau and Walter Matthau here is like King Supreme of, uh, like, of like this particular character. Like he is, he's actually perfectly cast. I mean, you wouldn't think that like Walter Matthau is like known to be like the working guy, the working, Oh, the working man, the schlub. I mean, you watch his films from the seventies and it's like taking a Pelham one, two, three, where it's just a work a day stiff that, like you know is really good at his job but he's kind of schlubby here he's like the like elaine may casted him against type and it's just it's perfect because he's he has that he has the same thing that he has in all of his roles which is that sardonic that sardonic nature like uh, i mean 
I hate to say this, but Bill Murray took a lot of his sardonic nature from Walter Matthau. And like Walter Matthau, he's like the originator of that particular deadpan sardonic kind of wit. And here it's used so much differently than it's used in other things like The Laughing Detective, um, Hopscotch or or I'm sorry, The Laughing Policeman or Hopscotch or even, you know, um, Charlie Varick, <laughs> like which are all like harder hitting, like gritty action dramas. And in, in the middle of all this time, like when in the 70s, when he's doing these things, he does this film, which is just such a breath of fresh air. Like you watch this and you go, fuck, this is this is fucking Walter Matthau. And it makes it even funnier because he just like he hits those notes that you need to hit to be that kind of uh, this particular kind of rich, quote unquote, playboy. Um, And I think that it's this perfect dance between him and Elaine May and Elaine May. I mean, like like when you watch this film, consider the fact that she was she wrote the script. She directed this film and she was also co-starring in it. And she was directing it that at the same time that she was having a bunch of shit thrown on her because of the Paramount executives did not like, like what they were seeing and made her life a living hell. So imagine all of that. And it still manages to be this movie. Um, and like a really well made and executed film. Uh, it's kind of interesting because like in direct opposition of it is Mikey and Nikki, which is, which is, it goes from romantic, like, you know, you go from romantic comedy and like, you know, five years later in, uh, in 76, because new leaf came out in 71, five years later, she's making this gritty drama with Cassavetes and, and Peter Falk about, about these two, retro um you know these two like low level these two low level criminals but they're also they they're like on the cusp of criminality like they work they 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 work they're like they work jobs but they're also in the criminal element and it's interesting like to see how she goes from one world to another and she's perfectly suited for both like when you watch Mikey and Nikki like this isn't like this is the most wonderful thing I love about directors is when directors can manage to take material and not only just make it their own but manage to put themselves into that particular genre and make sure that you don't see the seams and that's what Elaine May does with Mikey and Nikki is that like up until this point, all she had done is comedies. I mean, she I mean, you know, she did a new leaf, which was not a successful film. I mean, ultimately, what ended up happening was, was that there was a big, huge fight over the editing. Finally, Matthew had stepped in and basically told them, like, you know, we need to solve this. So they kind of did. They released it. It was a fair critical it had some fair critical acclaim, but it did not do well at the box office. Um, and then the next film she did, and again, a film that we are going to cover eventually is um, The Heartbreak Kid, starring Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepard. Uh, and that was a huge hit. Like, that was like 
the that was the ascension of Charles Grodin. And if you've never if you've never looked into like how like Charles Grodin, other than Midnight Run, I suggest you actually do a kind of a deep dive on him as an actor, because what you'll realize if you start doing your research, how big of a, an influence he was in the 70s, like he was really big. And part of the reason why was because of the Heartbreak Kid, which is just a great film. And we'll get into that one at a later time, because that one is definitely earmarked. But it was a huge hit. And so with that hit and that cachet, she went and turned, um, she turned to make Mikey and Nikki. Now, Mikey and Nikki, as I was saying, was, is this, is this, this gritty crime drama, um, about the, like, it takes place in Philadelphia and it's about these two small time operators, Mikey and Nikki, um, Mikey played by Peter Falk, uh, uh Nikki played by John Cassavetes. And it's about this epic long uh, long uh, long day's journey into night esque um night where uh, Nikki thinks he's going to be assassinated and how Mikey his best friend has tried to is is trying to get him out of town and what transpires is the what could almost be a, a stage play where throughout the night in their journey to do this and Nikki's uh, Nikki's like truly like almost uh, psychotic need to fuck everything up. We get to see a portrait of two friends and their friendship breaking and cracking to the soul, like to its like very core and to see where these two men are and how much, push and pull has been between these two men over probably a lifetime as we as we come to learn like you know these two have suffered each other uh, for a lifetime and we know these people like the thing is like what I love about what Elaine May has done with her script and her direction in this film is that it's not a gangster film in the traditional sense it's not like Goodfellas or even some of Cassavetti's work. It's kind of like this. I mean, it's more along the lines of like a Cassavetti's drama rather than like the killing of a Chinese bookie. It's it has genre elements into it, but what she uses that genre element for is to be able to dissect something that like she's able to dissect this these people's friendship in a level that's almost like Bergman-esque, where it's it, not in the pace, but in the way that she's able to really cut into the souls of these two men and and see just how much garbage there is and how these two people, eventually by the end, we, we come to understand these people. And it feels like over this two-hour time frame, we've spent not just a night with them, but a lifetime because we've gotten to know these two men. Um, Cassavetes and Falk are fucking amazing in this film. Like, I, I, I'm still always continually stunned that when I watch this film that more people don't know about this. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I, I love in crime film. Um, I'm not... You know, when it comes to crime films, I'm not really a big f fan of, like, crime for crime's sake. Um... 
give me crime, but give me something of a of a socio anthropological kind of point of view with it. Give me something that gives me more than just than just doing the crime. Like like give me like Michael Mann level detail, uh, and that's what she kind she does here. Like she's able to with this with with this incident in this this night where literally Mikey is trying to drag Nikki to safety and Nikki is just not allowing anything like this to happen because he's truly paranoid he's truly a paranoid maybe even a paranoid schizophrenic um played just to perfection by by um by John Cassavetes uh and how frustrating and heartbreaking it is for Mikey and the reveals that end up happening over the course of this film and the betrayals um, and the the calcified aggression and uh, between these two men who were friends, but at their core, like at at the end when you see this the, under the microscope they hate one another uh, it's just you 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 have to be stunned by it like i'm like i'm always stunned by watching when i watch this film because it cuts so deep it cuts so deep into male ego male stupidity um to uh, to illness like mental illness um to this lifestyle that these two men live it's and, and, and just men in general it's it's a very eviscerating uh crime drama that i feel like i don't i mean i don't even know why people have not like the same with new leaf i don't understand why somebody would actually not hold these in such high regard i mean these films like a new leaf, I will say is probably one of the most perfect romantic comedies I've ever seen. Now, mind you, I may have a skew point of view, but I personally feel that that's that's what I my personal feelings on it. Uh, with Mikey and Nikki, it's one of the most affecting dramas that I've seen in my entire life. Um, the ending, especially, like the fucking ending, is brutal. Like there, it is a brutal, brutal fucking ending. Um, like if you've never seen it, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you how it ends, but fuck. Like every single time I watch it, the last twenty minutes of this film just destroys me. Um the way that Peter Falk lays to bear his soul is like something I've never seen, even in his Cassavetti's work. It's nothing that I've ever seen before from him. Um the same with Cassavetti's himself. He does something here. Like the 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 final moments in this movie are so uncomfortably heartbreaking, um, and powerful that I don't know if I've ever seen anything in a Cassavetes film that laid him so bare. Like I mean, and that's saying a lot. I know because if you're a Cassavetes fan and you've seen Cassavetes work, you know that he always kind of stripped himself raw. And here it's the same thing, but it feels like it's extra. Because I don't think I think that the fact that he wasn't writing and directing freed him up to be able to focus laser focus on just 
performance. And Elaine May got a fucking amazing performance from him in this movie. I mean, both of them. I mean, there's a there's an entire fucking cast in this movie that's fucking amazing. I mean, you have Ned Beatty. Uh, Ned Beatty plays Kenny, who's a hitman that's been brought in to take out Nikki. So, I mean, like, I can give you at least that much that Nikki... Like, Nikki's paranoid schizophrenia is definitely not paranoid schizophrenia. It's literally, it's happening. Um, you have guys like William Hickey in this film. Uh, William Hickey, you <laughs> you would know as Lewis from uh, Christmas Vacation. Like, uh, and here he plays, uh, he plays Sid Fine, who's one of the capos in the in the organization that both Mikey and Nikki uh, work in, uh, you've got Sandy Meisner. I mean, literally the grandfather of like, you know, modern day acting Sandy Meisner, who would eventually, um, who had before, no, actually before, I'm sorry. Uh, two years before had one, uh, who had won an Oscar for the Godfather part two playing, a similar, a kind of a similar role, but not really. Um, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit different as, um, as Dave Resnick, but I mean, he kind of like the level at which he, like the level within the organization that he plays in is kind of analogous to like, you know, to his, to the kind of work that he's doing in, um, Godfather part two, uh, You've got M. Emmett Walsh is in this fucking movie uh, playing a bus driver, uh, but he has this great fucking moment, this great antagonistic moment between uh, between him and Cassavetes and literally one of the more real fights that you've ever seen break out between two people. Uh, <laughs> I like I still I still think about it and I smile because there's this like sense of realism that that permeates not just in that fight but in the entire movie like what I love is that she like you know Elaine May really kind of deep dove into the 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 style that Cassavetes really kind of refined throughout his life and his career and if I mean if I know it sounds really sacrilegious but like like film wise but I think that Lane May managed to out Cassavetes, Cassavetes in this film. Like, I know that sounds really weird, but, uh, like, and it may be controversial to you guys, but it's the case. I mean, you watch this film and you go, fuck. Like, she does what Cassavetes had done, but I feel like she did it better. Like, it's a little bit more focused. And again, like, much like A New Leaf, um, this film had massive production problems because she was shooting a lot of film. She had multiple cameras running at the same time. Uh, she was definitely doing the Cassavetes style of filmmaking. And supposedly, the rumor is, is that she shot 1.4 million uh, feet of film, which is uh, twice as much as Gone with the Wind um, had uh um, headshot, which <laughs> I mean, you, you, you say that and it's like, wow, but she was working with these two actors who are extremely improvisational. Like I know that everybody like thinks about Peter. Like I know a lot of people think of Peter Falk as that guy as the old grandpa or Colum like grandpa from, from princess bride or Columbo. But 
in this time in the 60s and the 70s or especially in the 70s when when he was working with Cassavetes um he was a fucking beast he like he was an improvisational beast i mean he you watch him in this film and it's not even the same guy there's like this heft to the realism like that both him and Cassavetes have uh i mean like you like, it's just it's amazing like it's just literally amazing watching the, these two guys go go head to head but it's not it's not just amazing in in regards to in regards to just the acting but it's how and I'm cutting it off right there, ladies and gents. You're going to have to actually uh, download the next episode in order for you to see what happens next uh, on the episode. Uh, don't worry, it'll pick up right where it left off. Uh, the Just a few housekeeping uh, things. Uh, if you want to, you can always follow us on the social media pages that we run. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. They're all the same tw- uh, handle, which is B movie pod the letter B the word movie the word pod on no lines no dashes no bullshit uh you can also read the written content that I write and a bunch of other very talented writers write at the movieisle.com that's the site that I am editor-in-chief and progenitor of so go ahead and take a look at that when you have some time if you definitely like the um the way that I approach uh cinema uh, on the podcast, then it would definitely benefit you to take a look at that, where we have a lot of like-minded writers that uh, love cinema and not just pop culture, uh, pop culture for movies, but actual cinema. So go ahead and check it out there. Uh, again, thank you for your patronage, uh, your listenership. It really does mean a lot, and it's the juice that keeps this going. Uh, we'll be back next time with the second part of our Lane May conversation. So until next time, talk to you soon.